Welcome back to Samsara Audio. This is Matthew Stanley. I write at Samsara Diagnostics, and I'm the host here at Samsara Audio. Today, I have the pleasure of having Dimitri on. Dimitri, I, I met Dimitri through the uh, Philosophy Portal community led by Cadell Last. Um, he is a close reader of texts. That's one thing that I really appreciate about Dimitri. He writes in a Spartan and uncommonly clear style, in my opinion. Uh, I really, really appreciate about that about him. He uh, forgoes the typical flourishes of the academic and uh, chooses to simply speak what he thinks, which I think is an important uh, quality in an individual. So welcome, Dimitri. Glad to have you here. Thanks for having me. I, uh, I read your recent piece, How to Regrow the Soul's Wings. I've also read a few of your past pieces that you've been putting out. And um, before we kind of get into how to regrow the soul's wings um, on Hegel and Plato's Phaedrus, I kind of I, I noticed that there's kind of a progression going on with your pieces. So you you seem to post infrequently, but sort of a longer form, more quality piece. Uh, you know that just seems to be your style. It, it seems to work for you, which is awesome. Um, I've read your The Birth of the Spirit Child, and then you put out The, uh, the Work of Love. You put out um, The Eye is a Funny Circle, and now we have How to Regrow the Soul's Wings. And I, there's this, there seems to be this progression of ideas. I'm wondering if you could draw it out for us of what, what path have you been exploring and kind of where, where is your material coming from as you're writing? Okay, yeah, that's a that's a great question. I I think the the first piece I wrote on Substack was called um, "Spiritual Practice: The Forward Return to the Self," and also the dialectic of the I. Those were the first two pieces I wrote, and um, that was back last year when I really started diving more deeply into uh, Hegel's phenomenology of spirit and. Um, trying to um, personalize the method, Hegel's method. I wrote also a paper called Hegelian Tantra, Edging the Absolute. And these pieces were me trying to embody and personalize Hegel's method, which he uses in his Phenomenology of Spirit, which is a means by which uh, spirit science comes to fruition, which is done from a certain scientific standpoint, as Hegel would say. Now, the, this um, what Hegel calls the ground of science is um, is a vantage point that you come towards through going through a phenomenological journey. Now, of course, one like the, the phenomenology of spirit to me is like um, Hegel's examples of what this could look like. However, he says in I don't remember where that it's not necessary to go through the phenomenology the phenomenology of spirit, the book itself, to attain this scientific vantage point, which, in other words, is absolute knowing, and is a more common way to speak about it. Now, with absolute knowing, you can actually um, do a scientific, go, go about philosophy in a scientific way, in a methodical way. And to me, I started thinking the I, as Hegel describes it, and or like demonstrate its, demonstrates its dialectical movement in the phenomenology of spirit, and Hegel also has um, some sporadic comments in, 
in the science of logic about the eye that I kind of wants to bring uh, together uh, to really delve into Hegel's actual thought on the nature of the eye. So I, I can go into that then uh, too, but insofar as you talk about the progression, yeah, like something that keeps coming up uh, in almost every piece that I write is is the, um, yeah, I guess the eternal nature of paradox or the eternal nature of um, the fact that in all kinds of logical circles, um, the beginning presupposes the end, but only in a retroactive way can you establish that. And by, by let's say, like working through notions dialectically, you can come back to yourself, but open yourself up anew to the becoming of a new circle, a new type of circling, let's say, or a new form of circling. So with all phenomena, and Hegel's philosophy itself is a circle of circles, as he says himself, to all types of phenomena, there is a different, um, there's a different form, but the same method ultimately applies. So it's like the, the return, the forward return to the self, that title very implies this, what I've been speaking about, just like the, the eye as a funny circle implies the, the fact that the eye as a funny circle or a quirky circle or a paradoxical circle isn't just, um, let's say, an abstractly self-symmetrical circle in some kind of static, spatialized, mathematical sense. It's, um, it's a type of movement that goes through torsions. And this is also why, for me, philosophy is definitely a, a spiritual pursuit as well, that one can it's a complex question like the relationship between spiritual practice and philosophy we can go into it here as well but i've ex been exploring different types of uh of spiritual practice tantra is one of them um to me the christian religion is also very much uh, very interesting fasting is one of the practices that i've been working with philosophy itself to me is also a type of training because i don't um, someone has critiqued me in this latest piece for not bringing out myself uh, enough. I think that's maybe in some sense it's a valid critique. However, I would say that for me as a young guy who's 23, it's important not to assert myself too soon, opposing, um, opposing my philosophical fathers, opposing Hegel, Zizek, Nietzsche, Plato. And... Um, yeah, my thinking is basically situated in, yeah, in this, uh, in this kind of venture. Like, how can I, uh, how can I um, create my own kind of thinking eventually by juxtaposing and comparing uh, the greatest minds that there ever were, were with each other in a methodical way? Is this possible? That's that's what I'm exploring. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you attempting the task and uh, letting the rest of us observe. There's um, there's some important work to be done on personalizing Hegel's method. I think that a lot of people don't take it that far. I think a lot of people see it as something that's very outside of them. Um, it feels very large, systemic, abstract, um, and uh, it can kind of just become um, parodying kind of Hegel talking points or just kind of adopting Hegel language, much like, you know, one reads Heidegger and just kind of disappears into all of the neologisms. 
Um, so I think that that's important work that you're doing. And on the criticism that you mentioned, I would I would just encourage you to stay the course. I, I personally agree with you that as a younger person, you know, I'm still I'm not even 30 yet. I I still when I'm spouting off an original opinion, I find myself kind of shaking in my boots a little bit. Uh, still, I, I really think that one should kind of um, pick a, a thinker or two or maybe three to kind of work through and maybe slightly kind of work out your own thought through them. I think that that's probably a better path for a younger person. And the reality is that m most people's great work gets written in there. 50s and 60s at this point um that's when people write kind of some of their greatest work in kind of our age in general not to say that there aren't folks who write a brilliant work in their 20s um but i i think it's okay to take your time the slow burn the long mediation of decades and a life experience and relationships with others and um and doubling back and and taking detours i think that there's a lot to be said for that and um, instead of just rushing out ahead and saying what you think in the moment. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And there's a, today in the age of the internet, it's very easy to um, to do this. You know, a lot of people are making, uh, let's say, pop philosophy content. There's uh, there's videos you can find about, you know, understand Hegel's uh, absolute idea in ten minutes or something like this. But the whole point is um, for like reading Hegel, like people like to come to with the criticism of it's so jargon heavy, it's so convoluted. The point of thinking and learning, especially someone like Hegel, is really to get the benefit out of that struggle itself instead of jumping over as if one could to the result and as if that's... Um, as if that's a ready-made thing already. Like Hegel describes it to a, a minted coin that some people think about truth in a way that uh, the truth is already out there. We just have to, uh, let's say, get the right instrument or think about having the right instrument uh, or instrumentalizing thought in the correct way so that we can get at this ready-made truth. Whereas there's no such thing. This is also to me where... Um, Hegel's theology becomes very, uh, very interesting. Hegel, people love to say that Hegel ha, um, is arrogant and has a lot of pride and um, is not really humble. Um, and like Kant took it for, um, I guess, a, a humble move that he would say something as God is unknown. But then the question is, like, if God is unknown, like, how do we derive anything from God? Uh, right and now of course Kant deals with this uh, in his own way grounding it in uh, in his first critique uh, his ethics and morality but for Hegel it's um, he deals with it in a different way and to him it comes down to something that is pretty simple the idea is what if if we if God in the Bible tells us to be perfect like Jesus Christ was perfect then how or not actually it's the opposite it says that to be perfect like God is perfect. That's what Jesus says. Like, how can we become this if we cannot know what God is? That doesn't make sense to, to Hegel. And, and in the science of logic, he says that this 
is a display or demonstration of the eternal essence of God. That's what one is reading about when mediating all those logical categories and uh, thinking them through. Now, to actually take this upon oneself, the idea that I have access to God, I have access to the thought of God, to knowing God, I think this has a great... um, Yeah, there's something there that's really great and that we shouldn't... um, shouldn't cut off ourselves from too quickly. Now, on the other hand, it's also a mistake to, to let's say, go for the fundamentalist or orthodox route and assert that you have some kind of correct belief of God and that God is conceptualized as a, as a kind of totality of exception, right? So there's different kinds of way that one can think about God. Uh, one can think about God as... Um, transcendent as well as imminent and ground his very transcendence in the fact that he's the the universal exception to all that um, to all that which he's not and this is for Lacan it's kind of a masculine logic is the idea that there is the the primal father or the king and the rest is basically are just castrated uh, men who are castrated in relation to the let's say the greatness of um, of the exception whereas with hegel someone like shizek would argue he thinks about god in a in a feminine kind of way not that god is a is a man or a woman that doesn't really matter but it's more so that there's an there's a certain imminence to god's becoming in our own self-knowing of God. And God only knows himself insofar as uh, we know God too. So there's a, there's a mutual reciprocity and mutual need for, for mankind and for God. Um, now this is, yeah, I, I definitely think that the death of God or like secular philosophical thinking uh, loses something by not um, by by not letting itself have access to to thinking these things through. Does it make sense to you? Yeah. Um, your comment about Kant's supposed humility in the unknown God kind of made me think of a just a little vignette in the Book of Acts with Paul, where he goes to where he goes to a Greek city and he sees an altar that says to the unknown God. And he stands up and he says, hey, um, I actually know who this God is. Let me tell you about him. And they all gather around and he tells them about Jesus Christ who died and rose again. And it's it's really interesting that there's this uh, Paul's humility. Like uh, on the one hand, Paul seems to be this kind of like bull in a china shop, like barging ahead, getting getting thrown in jail and he's just like confidently opposing people who need to be opposed. And, um, but he, he went through that dialectical process of struggle and labor. He, he was the, he describes how he used to persecute Christians originally. He, he would send them to prison. He would kill them. And then he has this encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus. And then he completely through this, painful labor turns his life around and enters into this new task, which is extremely difficult and landing him in prison and ultimately gets him executed. So 
um, he sees the unknown God and proclaims who that unknown God is, but it's a man who's died and rose again. And now Paul is the servant of this, this mission to take this message to everybody. And um, I, I think there's something more Hegelian about that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. There's a uh, Christianity is the religion of where, the, where God dies. Right. And this is also where the notion of Christian atheism uh, from Zizek uh, comes from. So it's, um, if God can be that notion that is not only, let's say a notion of, um, perfection and, uh, and omnipotence or uh, all knowing, but every time you lose faith in whatever it is, you transpose that into God himself. Like God is inclusive of your own unease with the notion of God. There is a persistence, a persistent alienation in the notion of God that might seem um, not repulsive, but well, it can be, but, but uh, people don't feel like at ease with the idea that with the notion of God itself. Right. And this can come from like having lived through a certain Christian tradition that they feel doesn't get it right. Or, uh, living in atheism and uh, seeing an archaic naivete in the notion of God. Well, all of that you you transpose in, in God himself. And that's the, the mystery. That's the paradox. As um, Lorenzo Chiesa describes it in his uh, book, uh, The Not Two, is that God is the name of the paradox of the symbolic order. And the fact that the symbolic order always um, is in a in an attempt to make one, but always fails in this. That's that's the basic idea. It's more complex. And this persistence of God in his absence and his presence, like that's to to think those kinds of things through is immensely difficult and immensely worthwhile too. Now to take a step back and make this uh, more personal too, that for Hegel and Christianity itself, God is love. And Hegel says too that love is the most immense contradiction. Well, in my in my recent piece on the Phaedrus, it's clear that Plato was <laughs> well aware of how ambiguous and um, and violent and uh, symptomatic love is. Now, what I find beautiful. Uh, about the Phaedrus is that Plato makes a distinction between madness and divine madness, whereas the normal madness is, is a human madness. Divine madness is that which you need to um, be a creator of, of artwork or great philosophy or those types of things. And he says love is the most, is the, is the best form basically of uh, divine madness that the heaven can confer to us as a blessing. So I, if you look at, to go back to your first question, if you go back to the recent things that I've been exploring, tantric sexuality in Hegelian Tantra, um, the, in the mystical is rational, I've been, that was basically my philosophical interpretation of um, my uh, ayahuasca trip in a 
in a church with Santo Daime in their ceremony. If I look back on it now and think about the fact that to me, God right now is love and his eternal essentiality is demonstrated in the science of logic. How do we think that um, through today? And what does that say about not only Hegel as the philosopher of love, but philosophy itself as a way to deal with the tremendously mystical and um, the yeah, tremendously mystical and intense experience of, of love. Not only falling in love, but everything that um, everything that love entails, since love is both violent and also mundane. If love is never mundane, then one is probably not uh, fit for a long-term relationship. So there, there has to be a mundanity uh, to it too. Now, one of the Hegel talks about love in different ways. Um, one, one could say, psychological or philosophical distinction that he makes, I'm still exploring it, and that he gets from Plato is the difference from um, difference between sensing something, representing something, and thinking something. So when you sense something, like you sense an apple, you eat it, you, you apprehend it with your eyes, that's one thing. Now you can also th um, think about the apple, but it's not actually thinking about the apple, it's more like you imagine an apple or you represent it in uh, let's say the abstract space of thought and then there's thinking the apple well as soon as you think the apple it's basically gone because it's kind of like the the previous thought or it's like you can think about it in like the way that it's a finite entity it's just it's an apple is an apple and then it perishes and it's not an apple anymore so that's not really interesting to um let's say true or let's say pure thought now this hegel of course, he gets it from Plato. Uh, he also applies it to love. And he says there's such a thing as the love of the sense. Now, the way I think about it is like, um, let's say you have a, a deep experience of tantric sexuality or sex itself or cuddling, embracing. This would be the sensuous love. There's also representing love. This would be that type of desiring when you uh, envision each other together or something like this. And then there's thoughtful love. And Hegel says, I'm paraphrasing him, he says that love is empty if it was not for this last one, which means that if not for negativity, love is empty because thinking hurts. <laughs> thinking, what, what is thinking? Well, it's not sensing something and it's not representing something. That's clear. What does that mean? It means that you set sensing aside, you set, which means you set instinct aside, and that means you start representing a side. So first of all, you don't have the edification or let's say the seeming edification of um, instinct or sensing something like you would have when you're eating something, you know, you're, you know what you're doing, you're eating it and you're enjoying the plate. Or when you're having sex, you know, you're enjoying this kind of, uh, that type of um, activity. Now, when you're representing something, you have a seeming edification in the fact that you can picture something. You know, if I am talking about a concept and you don't know what I'm talking about, and I say, well, picture this, then you're like, aha, okay, now, now I can see it in front of me, right? In thinking, you don't have both, neither of these. So you are fighting against the body, but you're also, uh, in a way, fighting against the, um, perhaps the, the strongest tendency in the mind, which is not philosophical, which is the, 
what Hegel calls the faculty of the understanding, which thinks in an in a way that is um, abstract and uses representation. Now, actual thinking. So, what is what is left there for us is basically um, to describe it in the simplest uh, way is the self-othering of logical moments. The fact that being comes down to nothing and nothing comes down to being. So what is being? Well, it's not nothing. What's nothing? Well, it's it's not being. But when I say being, what do you have in mind? Well, nothing really. <laughs> when I say nothing, well, that's something at least. So that's being, right? So there's a there's a way in which she, these terms, which seem to be absolutely opposed, turn out to be the same. But that doesn't take away any the fact that they are absolutely opposed and that I can also, let's say, make sense of them in that way. So there's a persistence of the absolute opposition as well as their, let's say, absolute self-sameness. And um, this is uh, what I just said. is kind of a simple uh, example, but the way Plato uh, and Hegel go about it uh, really gets complex. Um, yeah, and for example, take Plato's Parmenides or take Hegel's Science of Logic, right? So these, um, this is why in the, the article on how to regrow the soul's wings, I, I mentioned the fact that Hegel says that there's a kind of inner intuiting happening here, which is interesting because he actually critiques, um, critiques the idea that one can do philosophy by means of intuition in the phenomenology of spirit. But then he says, well, there's an inner intuiting. Well, what's this? Well, to him, it's the internal eye which apprehends the invisibility of the concept or the absolute idea, however you want to put it. Now, there, of course, you must have a certain kind of sensitivity or disposition to go into this. I don't believe everyone can nor should do philosophy to this uh, extent. However, there's also a, a universality to this that philosophers can can tap into. Now, the... Um, the problem that arises here, of course, is that that universality is not a tapping into the, let's say, the eternity of forms out there, but is an imminent result of uh, of the signifying chain. So it's not, and it is kind of quilting result, to so so to say. So it's um, it's kind of a, a mess, and uh, yeah, it's I, I do believe though, and it's it's um like what what do you really get out of this let's say true thinking aside from representations aristotle wrote his organon right which is like greek for instrument so the idea is you can use like to actually think do metaphysics physics you can um, purify your own thought so that in action you can do it in accordance with thought and not succumb to uh, your uh, instinctive nature. Okay. On the other hand, philosophy must be absolutely free thought, otherwise it's not uh, free-spirited thinking. Therefore, there's also a sense in which philosophy must be useless. Because if you reduce it to use, then it's not philosophy anymore. You know, one thing that... Um... There's, I have so many thoughts about what you're saying. Really, thank you for sharing these these ideas with us. I, I'm reminded of the passage that we read in Lacan in the most clo in the close reading 
session that you led for philosophy portal a couple weeks ago, um, I'm reminded of Lacan's description of the analytic encounter and the relationship that the analyst and the analyzand have where you can't decide on the outcome ahead of time, but you have to go into it together. Um, basically being open to whatever's going to happen. Basically you can't, you can't decide, okay, we, we need to, like, this is the pathology. We have some sort of vision of health and where we want to be on the other side. Um, you know, that might be kind of like the understanding, for instance, the understanding has an objective and it's trying to get there and it has this set of cognitive tools. Um, whereas the analytic encounter is more like, um, I, is is more about I, I want to understand the problem better. And the analyst says, okay, I don't have any answers for you, but we can we can get into this together. And the longer you talk and the more I listen, um, something's going to start to come up. And we don't know what that's going to be, but whatever it is, we're going to work with it. And we have to work with it over time. And so I kind of see this, um, there, the connection between hegel's journey that spirit goes through on the way to absolute knowing is um it's kind of like a a, it's like a it's it's an analysis session where spirit is kind of going on this journey that it doesn't fully know where it's going to go and a lot of things are cropping up and it's othering itself and exploring different parts of itself and um, different ways that it could speak about itself and along the way it starts to it starts to build a relationship with the opposites that are also just as constitutive of what it is. I'm wondering if uh, I'm wondering how um, you know to to talk about your about your piece, how to rego the soul's wings. I'm wondering about how we think about this in relation to Lacan. There's there's a lot of different threads here. Obviously, Lacan does kind of a reading of the symposium. Um, Maybe there's a reading of the soul as maybe like object ah, you know, that I can see like kind of a reading there. But um, there's also a, this distinction between knowledge and truth that you're kind of bringing out yeah. and that Hegel also is kind of bringing out too a little bit. And I think Lacan is, especially in these early pieces that we're reading, he's pressing on the, that distinction between knowledge and truth. So I think there's a lot, there's a lot of, um, fruitfulness to be had in reading Lacan and Hegel together in this way. And I'm wondering, um, does that come out in your piece? How, how is that coming out in your own thought right now? Yes. The distinctions between knowledge and truth, there is a, there's definitely different ways you can go about this, but, um, one entry point here is to, think about the fact that knowledge has a presupposition like to let's say to to enter into the activity uh, of seeking knowledge or having knowledge presupposes truth which means there's a there there is a presupposition that knowledge and truth can you be unified now we are cut off from the truth that's also a presupposition, otherwise we wouldn't be on that very seeking. And in the in this article, I kind of play around with the fact that in contemplative uh, comprehension of the truth, there is both a distinguishing and a 
a unification of knowledge and truth, which comes out in different moments. Now, my um, the idea of the soul losing its wings and thereby being born as a young being and then regrowing them is is a is a funny mythical exploration. Like Plato says something. And it's through the mouthpiece of Socrates as it will take for normal people like 10,000 years to regrow their souls. But philosophers can do it, uh, fortunately, within, within 3,000 years. And then they, he says, well, if they want to do it, they basically have to um, live the life of the philosopher successively three times. So if you live it three times, but it's not success, su successively, and you die in between, and then you chose another life, it doesn't work out. You must do it in this way <laughs> and to me that's uh, that's so funny because it's like a question comes up like what does he really mean by that and what the hell does it mean to regrow the, the souls again right the fact that plato talks about the invisibility of this realm of the gods to me really confirms the way zizek goes about plato which is that zizek says that this eternal beyond that Plato posits, Plato knew that it wasn't really like, um, let's say, uh, an actual pantheon of uh, you know persons sitting there up in, in the heavens. Plato was well aware of that. Now, if you take the, the Gorias, which he wrote uh, way before the Phaedrus, he does actually base the idea that it's worse to do um, bad to someone than to... Um, what was the idea again? Yeah, it's worse to do bad to to do someone. It's not, yeah. So basically, you must, you must let someone else do bad to you because it's less bad than doing something bad to them. And then he grounds it in the eternity of the beyond, right? Because there's a basic trend, a pagan transaction that goes here. Like if you do bad to someone else, well. You'll you'll have to see how the gods um, what the gods will think about this. So there's a, a way in which Plato does like using myth, myths as a as a reference point. Now in the, in the way he goes about it in the Gorgias, it's not very convincing or, or interesting to me. But the idea of the soul having wings, and then he goes into these deep these deep tangents about actually I didn't go into it in my article, but he says something like, yeah, the soul uh, used to be feathered all over and it's entire sur the entire surface of the, the soul had, uh, had feathers. I don't, I don't really know what he's, he's on about there, but the idea that, you know, when you fall in love, you have this mystical experience and then you, uh, you st your soul basically starts um, being flooded by the emanation of the beauty of the other. So this flood actually makes the soul wet and this um, clears up the drought. So then there's uh, little feathers that come up again. <laughs> it's a very uh, yeah, kind of crazy image. Uh, but I, to me, this notion of a soul that has fully regrown its wings has a lot of similarity to the notion of uh, Zarathustra's overman or Hegel's absolute knowing. So it's not necessarily this this idea of okay when when are they going to get regrown and then it's all going to be fine and then you know it's a it's a persistent kind of notion that's intrinsically contradictory too 
It's because, like, take the notion of the Overman. If you would read the notion of the Overman in just the way that it is something that is uh, beyond and that we're always striving towards and failing to strive towards and trying to go down, uh, yeah, to, to self-overcome towards this notion, then it's a ridiculous notion, right? Then it's, it doesn't really have philosophical interest, but it's in the, um, in the richness of its ambiguity in the present where it becomes more interesting to me. So there's definitely moments in my life that I've that one feels like uh, one's soul is winged. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Like moments of bliss, like listening to great music, dancing, these kinds of things. Um, so that's that's where the notion comes to uh, for me. And uh, eventually, I'll probably relinquish whatever that uh, metaphor means to me you know there is uh, what i'm trying to do in these kind of long form articles is i'm trying to see what are the psychological presuppositions of hegel's metaphysics that he bases on plato and what can we do with lacan's idea of jouissance to perhaps see the limits of hegel therein now i know shishik writes about it I'm going, trying to do go about it in my in my own way by you know reading uh, as much as I can of uh, of all of them uh, and uh, so yeah, Plato is definitely massively important to that type um, the type of exploration. So that's one side of it. Another side of it is the fact that Plato has this notion of love that love has to go along with the pursuit of wisdom. Now there's a deep similarity here between what, um, yeah, so what Plato says, on the one hand, that love has to make the soul ascend and take off in flight. And what Hegel says, that if, and he's basically building on what he's uh, said before about love having to be thoughtful. In other words, we can use for this is like love has to be spiritual. So the way th Hegel thinks about spirit is that it, spirit is language. Like the actuality of spirit is language and spirit is, is, is thought. It's not, our spirit is at least thoughtful. So uh, I believe it's in the philosophy of spirit that Hegel says that if love doesn't, well, let's say he compares it to different social classes. So if someone from a lower class who's not educated, let's say in a spiritual way, goes with someone who is, who is cultivated culturally, then it will not work out. That's what Hegel says. The, he says the love will not become true. So this is this is uh, something that Plato and Hegel says. Now Zizek turns this around in a very weird way. He says, "No, love is um, is like earthly. It's not about this beyond and uh, the heavens and this kind of spiritual ascent. You have to go through the end, through the object, like the through through matter." <laughs> now, what the hell does he mean by that? It can mean different things. Um, but yeah, there's. A, I'm exploring it in my uh, paper on the in the work of love, so we'll we'll see where I where I go uh, with it. Well, I'm interested in that analogy as well. Kind of the difference between, like, what is an analogy of ascent versus an analogy of through, kind of do. Um, 
I recently wrote a piece on toward like kind of a Protestant mysticism talking about the face of God and the face of our neighbor. And I think that like one, instead of the kind of analogy of ascending to this beatific vision to behold God sort of like nakedly uh, um, revealed something like what Dante enjoys kind of at the end of the Paradiso. um, I, I kind of argue more for we, God has made it such that now we only experience him through the face of another, only through our neighbor. Do we experience God for, I mean, Jesus specifically says, um, if you, give even a cup of water to the least of these, you do it unto me. Hmm. And he, he explicitly identifies himself <laughs> not simply with the other, but with the one who's needy. And it's, it's really fascinating that there is this coincidence where to love the neighbor is to love God. And so the yeah. relationship becomes inextricable. We don't, we don't get to love God outside of that relationship. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, if you aren't loving the neighbor, God doesn't accept your love. Like he says this to Israel in the prophets. He says, you know, I, I ignore your sacrifices and I don't want, I don't even want to smell them because of how you treat the poor and the widows and the orphans in your midst. I don't want anything to do with your supposed love. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's tremendous. I love that. That's uh yeah, that really gets to the imminence of, of God too, right? N- not thinking about God as just merely out there that I can in withdrawal in my self-relation to God, uh, get, uh, get out. No, it's, there's, a, there's a radical cut of God in uh, relating to other subjects. And that's, um, it's, it's a difficult notion too, right? Because it's a notion of, of radical engagement with the world instead of knowing God in, in the bliss of retraction. I just watched a lecture by, I believe his name is Pierre Grimes. He's a Neoplatonist, more so Neoplatonist philosopher. And he was working up to the notion of the good and um, the one, and you see it more often with Neoplatonists that it's, there's this purported journey to that uh, beaut- uh, that that vision of beatitude at the end, the beaut- beatific vision. Well, why why is that the case, or why is that why would we want to attain that? Right? <laughs> Maybe it's more like philosophy is kind of the opposite. You have that kind of mystical experience, which could be induced by psychedelics, like drugs, like it people get like um, it changes people really you know they can have certain drug-induced experience or um, tantric sexuality or love itself and I think that notion of love being mystical is so underrated and to me like Zizek is not really interested in psychedelics he obviously never did drugs in his life that's what he says at least and then he, in his book, The Puppet and the Dwarf, that's a book about, that is a book about Christianity. He's asking the question at the end of the book, okay, where is Christianity to go next? First, it can go to the institution, but he doesn't have hope for that. Now, someone like Peter Rollins is trying that, and we're 20, late, 20 years after the publishing of that book, so we'll see whatever happens with that. Then there's also the idea of 
we can ground, um, let's say, Christianity in the mythical in the mystical experience of like, oh my, my personal relationship to God was so and so, and he says that's also not the way to go, but there is a there is a third way for uh, for Zizek that involves this this radical kind of engagement. Now, of course, he for him it's the communist collective that eventually does this. I don't think we have to take that literally. I don't think it's even meant to be taken literally. Maybe in some sense Zizek takes it too, too literally. I like the spirit of that idea, though. Uh, the spirit of um, higher order collaboration and organization in the real of politics and uh, in the economics. That's that's what it's about. And I think Zizek would agree with me here that that's, that has nothing to do with um, 20th century uh, attempts even though his analysis of those uh, failures is tremendous so this is um yeah well where zizek is getting this right in my opinion is that he's thoroughly insisting on um christianity as being political um the the end goal of christianity is a political community i mean the 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 very first chapter of mark the first time we hear the words of Jesus in that book, his proclamation is repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's not, Hey, I came to die for your sins or Hey, God loves you. I'm here to tell you about forgiveness. It's a, it's the proclamation of a new political reality breaking out in the world. And that is coming and you need to prepare yourself for the coming of this reality. And so I agree with Zizek and I appreciate that he insists on this, that um, he, he takes, he takes the book of acts seriously where the spirit falls. And the first thing that the people do is they immediately form a community where they sell all things, share things in common, where they're taking the Eucharist, where they are caring for each other. They're learning together. They're worshiping. Um, So the spirit immediately pushes them into community with each other. I think that that's that's that is where spirit impels is us impels us towards each other, um, and and the key is figuring out how do we navigate the pain of the pain and labor of love, which is madness. I agree with that, <laughs> um, but it's 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 scary to be caught in relation with another mad person, you know, like the presence of the other person who is who loves is terribly anxiety inducing um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think of it like we we struggle one of the big reason we struggle i think is because we are wired for this connection with other people just as creatures we're just so wired for connection even at the most basic level you look at infants you look at baby monkeys mm. and how badly they need connection with the caretaker but the only people that exist are real people who are broken and who are imperfect and who have problems yeah. and who induce anxiety in us because they're variable and changing and not transparent. And so yeah. our, we're driven out of fear and anxiety into the arms of each other. And, and we're not sure which is better, <laughs> whether we were to die or to find ourselves in the hands of the other. Um, it's, it's terrifying. I think that's the dilemma that we find ourselves in. Yeah, yeah, I think it's well said. And I think this, you know, when you read the ancients, something that's really interesting is how similar 
those uh, those days were. Like in letter seven, later we'll talk about um, the fact that in some uh, city, I believe it was uh, Syracuse in uh, Sicily, that he speaks of that people live very luxurious lives there. They never sleep alone in their beds. Uh, they drink so much all the time. Uh, and then he's like, how can a wise man grow up in such an environment? <laughs> and then he goes on about well, writing as an activity is it is a great um, yeah is a great le- uh, way to fill your leisure and you should do it when everyone else is like partying and drinking and having sex and doing all kinds of crazy things right like that's where you should just sit down and read and and write and study and that's the way you should use uh, leisure now Zizek the way he speaks about love in our present day is that. Um, today it's not sex that has to be liberated it is love i think a lot of well i not i think i know that a lot of people think they can liberate um love through sex now it's very way easier to fall into lust and if you want to say call that way sin it's um yeah, but it's very much uh, present, right? And uh, Plato talks about it too, like how the multitude, like I mentioned it in my article, right? The multitude extols um, promiscuity as virtuous. It was true in Plato's day and it's true now. This idea of basically let's, uh, the idea of I am going to emancipate myself in a bodily way by <laughs> in a kind of greedy way too, kind of and lustful way, um, yeah, I have sex with with many, and uh, I'm not saying that's morally reprehensible. I couldn't care less. Like, please, if you're in this kind of phase, please go for it and live it through the end. Do it safely, though. But um, yeah, liberating love, perhaps that's in, in a way the the objective to philosophy to liberate love in a political way, and this is a. This is something that to work on really takes decades. I think what psychoanalysis does, it it, it can liberate oneself and emancipate oneself in the individual process, which of course sets oneself up to to be more constructive with others, if we want to confine it in this kind of sense, right? But philosophy should set us up to go for that community of love that you are talking about it's not that philosophy should instruct on how to do this that's up to us but it's it should bring us to to that point in which we we see the possibility and we can also cut ties with our past where we are still stuck in the effect that our self-image is um there's a discrepancy between our self-image and the reality we are living in right and insofar as we keep on compulsively um repeating that image in the discrepancy between it and the reality, we're not going to actually open up reality or open ourselves up to reality to bring in that new, those new types, those new forms of life that are needed because we live in a in a contradictory present that is uh, in a, a, that is deficient. And this uh, and this is where the nature of reconciliation comes uh, forward to me, and this is also why. Like, philosophy to me is not an academic uh, pursuit, but it's, it's friendship that is so important to, 
to one. Like if one is an academic philosopher or not, doesn't really matter to me. It's like, are you, um, yeah, what do you have to say about things like this? Love, friendship, uh, politics, you know, less so the abstract notions. I'm more interested in, in uh, the nature of, of, of virtue in a sense that, you know, Socrates famously thought just like the sophists that it was a waste of time to think about atoms or think about the news. Socrates wasn't asking people about these types of things. He was asking people about virtue and justice, these kinds of things. Um, I'm not saying to, like, I don't think uh, metaphysical exploration is senseless or useless like Socrates. I'm, I guess I'm more leaning to Plato himself uh, here. But, uh... No, but I see your point. I think you're, you're pointing out that Socrates didn't start from the quest from metaphysical questions. Yeah. He began from the standpoint of lived experience of experiencing the contradiction of what does it mean to love? And that led him to ask some higher order questions, but the goal was, to, the goal was always in service of understanding how to, how to live. Yeah. And this is also the thing, right? That, that Socrates said, the only thing I know is that I don't know anything. But for him, he wanted to bring people to this knowing, which I guess Hegel developed to the extent that we call it absolute knowing. He wanted to, Socrates wanted to bring people to absolute knowing, to this process of refutation, which is a process of purification, so that we can actually start to build something. That's what people never say when they say, oh, yeah, Socrates said, I know so, that I don't know anything. Well, yes, that's true, but that's the starting point. That's not the end point. He wanted to bring people to that starting point, just like absolute knowing is a, a starting point. I think it's the starting point that's the hardest. I think that's why there's so much like circling around it. I think about what I talk, what I mentioned earlier about Jesus saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here there's this interesting problem with like, how does repentance work? Like, how do you turn your back on an old way? Because from the standpoint of the old way, the new way doesn't look good because you know, like when you're, when you're, when you're, how do you, how do you affect a radical change when you need to have already been changed to have the desire to change? There's this loop that we've talked about. And so uh, I think a lot of, a lot of the really interesting work is around how do we change? How do we get to that point where we can change? And what is that state? Not the set of beliefs, not the intellectual commitments. What is that state where we are ready to change and to to um, release ourselves into that process of becoming, which is very scary. But how do we how do we how do we get to that point? I think you're wrestling with that question. Um, yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it yeah, yeah, no, for like sure, yeah, I think find that place. That's that's a great way of putting it. I am struggling with that question, and I am also I also have in the back of my mind the fact that philosophy is not in the business to instruct on on that change. Philosophy cannot say anything about the future. Religion does, and that's also um, what can be great about religion. Philosophy does not, and it should not do this. It should have the job of reconciling us to that present so that we can perceive the discrepancy in a different way. But 
just like I wrote in my article, to perceive it means to see something that is invisible, which is also why it's very hard for a lot of people to um, to to see to know you know what what actually is is philosophy, just like it is for philosophers, right? <laughs> Well, Dimitri, I am going to kind of bring things to a close here because we uh, I do try to keep things under an hour, and uh, I do like to subscribe to the um, maximum of, of when it's when it's good, we should leave people wanting more. So that's kind of my that's I'm I like to be a tease in in podcasting and keep things short. So thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. You've said a lot that I'm going to continue to think about. Um, did you have any final words that you wanted to share before we kind of bring things to a close here? Yeah, well, it's uh, it's been a delight uh, talking to you, and uh, yeah, I'm really grateful uh, that uh, I have the honor to uh, to be here. So thanks for all, of that. and thanks for uh, being my friend and uh, exploring all these topics uh, together with me, being on this journey. You're welcome. I'm blessed. Uh, I'm thankful to have a friend like you, Dimitri, and thankful that I can call you my friend and that we can just work on these things together over over time as we're on a journey. Um, I will link your your uh, Substack in the description. But uh, to everybody, uh, this has been Samsara Audio. Um, you can go to Samsara Diagnostics, uh, samsara.clinic, and sign up for my weekly newsletter there. Um, or you can just follow or review me on any major podcast platform. I would really appreciate it. Uh, may you see what is invisible, and may you liberate love politically. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>